Welcome to my house. Enter freely and of your own will. Welcome to my house. Enter freely. Go safely and leave something of the happiness you bring. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome. Welcome, actually, to Fantastical Truth, not the Castle of Dracula. And I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven. Lorehaven creates this podcast, which exists to find the best-made Christian fantasy and share these stories, find their truths, their excellencies, and apply them to the real world that Jesus calls us to serve. And I apologize for serving not too great with that accent, but it was the best thing I could come up with on short notice. And I'm Zachary Russell, and unless you're a vampire, you can call me Zach, and I won't bother with an accent because I've been told I'm not very good at those, but this is episode 39, How Might Bram Stoker's novel Dracula Cast Light Against Modern Vampires, and we'll be interviewing Jeffrey Ryder. So Stephen, why are you talking about vampires? I mean, besides the fact that it's October. Because vampires are kind of cool. <laughs> Okay, they're not cool. All right, no, I, I, I misspoke there. No, vampires are not cool. They're evil. They're wicked. I actually tire, and I did not realize how tired I was of this until I read or rather listened to an audiobook version of uh, Dracula a couple of years ago. 2018, I think. It was a sunshiny spring. Not the best weather for a, a gothic a vampire tale, but I'd never read it before. This is a genre that I'm not as familiar with or haven't been, at least until uh, reading this. And I absolutely loved it. I did not grow up with vampire movies or vampire lore. I mean, you know, some creepy grinning face on a Halloween decoration or a cereal box was my only exposure. And of course, there's the whole sparkling vampire trend of the early or was the late 2000s? Rarity into, no, no, I guess it was the 2010s, really. Uh, yeah, I got kind of tired of that, but it was only after I read Dracula that I realized, oh my goodness, now I know why fans were so upset. The vampire has been ruined. It truly has been, but I think it was kind of being ruined before. This is an abysmal symbol of evil and the corruption of human nature, uh, the undead opposed to life before you even start talking about all of the novels, themes of fears that the Victorian era readers would have been afraid of most. Uh, we'll get into that with uh, Jeffrey later. It was a fantastic interview. But that's why lately I can't shut up about Dracula. It gives the, the vampire idea, at least according to Stoker, really helped to give my imagination some kind of picture, some kind of story language to describe a variety and a depth of depravity uh, that I just don't think any genre can capture as, so well as, as this particular mythology. Well, growing up, I was an avid Nintendo gamer, as I've shared before, and so one of the games I played was Castlevania, and it was very much about like killing vampires, hunting them down because they're evil and they're bad. There was, there was a great movie when I grew up called Monster Squad, it came out in 1987, so I saw this pretty young, and it was about this group of boys that were facing off against a group of monsters led by Dracula himself. And there was uh, the Wolfman, who there's a, a classic scene when the Wolfman gets kicked, and I'll just let you look that up. Uh, there's a not the creature from the Black Lagoon because of licensing issues and uh, a mummy, Frankenstein's monster. And this whole group of monsters wants to plunge the world into darkness. And the boys are trying to stop that and actually cast the monsters into limbo, which for some reason that, that 
imagery really stuck with me of, of limbo, um, sort of like this purgatory hell dimension that monsters have to go to. But this movie was like the, a cross between uh, the adventure and humor of a fellow 1980s cult classic, The Goonies, but also sort of cross with this uh, horror of the time, The Lost Boys. These all came out around around in the same time. Steven, I, I distinctly remember the scene where the vampire tries to trick the boys by giving his name on a, a card or something as Mr. Alucard, which they figure out is Dracula spelled backwards. And there's this really you know classic moment where they're like kind of tracing the line or the letters and saying, oh, wait, if you switch it around, it's like an anagram. It's it's Dracula. Oh my gosh, he's about to get us. And so, you know, he was very much a villain that that they are trying to square off against. Uh, Jonathan Harker and I think it's Quincy Morris uh, actually ended up putting an end to that particular headcanon. I almost wish that the Count was not so public domain as he is, because right now he's not a licensed character like Mickey Mouse or somebody. Anybody can use Dracula. Anyone can abuse Dracula. Uh, there is nothing like, I think, going back to the original. I mean, this creature contributed a lot to vampire lore, as we get into in the interview. Uh, but just the original character is just so unique and so genuinely frightening if you think about it. And all these different adaptations of him that turn him into either a cartoon character or an anti-hero or something. It just uh, it bothers me. It really does bother me. And I might be in a dracula cage stage you know i just got a hold of this thing that i've been missing all this time and now i'm going to tell everybody about it at least folks i'm self-aware but i'm also aware of some new uh gifts i get now you know uh last christmas i had uh, the icelandic translation of dracula it had been lost for a while apparently and uh, published fairly recently called powers of darkness i wanted to read icelandish I don't, but it was translated, fortunately. Oh, oh, gotcha. Uh, it was, I mean, it was translated into um, Icelandic and then translated back to English. And there's, a, I think last I checked, there was a little uncertainty about uh, whether the translator had added some or whether this was an earlier version of Stoker's original work that had been translated. But some people apparently like this better than the original somehow. So now I get to read that and find out, oh, is it better than the original now that I've read the original twice? I'm not a horror uh, guy, uh, necessarily. Uh, I, I prefer uh, fantasy and science fiction, uh, even comedy mystery. But right now, yeah, I would much prefer uh, that uh, if we talk about Stoker's novel, we put away uh, the modern adaptations, uh, the 90s uh, movie with the weird costumes, or even uh, the, uh, what's his name, Bella Lugosi. Uh, I probably really mispronounced that. From the 30s, I believe. Like all of those contribute oh, right. to the, the popular lore. Right, exactly. Um, that, that's what most people think of. You know, or, or even uh, Christopher Lee, who, uh, who at least looked like a fantastic uh, Dracula and who himself seemed to have some profound observations about the nature of evil. And then going on to play Saruman, of course, uh, that's, that's even better. Uh, this is the original potent stuff. And it, I think it's lain dormant for a while and not just for me. I think now, especially with a lot of the challenges we have in the world, trying to understand this kind of predatory evil, this inverted masculinity, now is a great time to discover the original Dracula, to explore the surprising depths of this popular level work uh, that is, uh, you'll hear Jeffrey say later, is actually kind of getting rediscovered just within the last 20 years or so. People are giving it a second chance and realizing, oh, there's some real depth here, folks. And uh, to illustrate that, I thought uh, we'd actually give an excerpt uh, from the book. Uh, won't try any accents this time. 
Uh, but if you're ready, Zach, uh, we'll start with this, uh, with this clip. It's actually a scene between uh, Dr. Van Helsing, who's, who's not a cartoon. Uh, he's, uh, he's not an action hero. Uh, he's a gentle, fatherly, yet fierce professor. He struggles. He weeps out loud. He is knowledgeable. He takes care of women in particular. Uh, he will go overboard, praising their feminine virtues and insights and the fact that they think just as well as men, if not better. I think Van Helsing needs to come back, too. Now, I thought we'd just read that clip right now. Yeah, let's hear it. Van Helsing speaking, quote, But before we go, let me see you armed against personal attack. I have myself, since you came down, prepared your chamber by the placing of things of which we know, so that he may not enter. Now let me guard yourself. On your forehead I touch this piece of sacred wafer in the name of the Father, the Son, and... There was a fearful scream which almost froze our hearts to hear. As he, Dr. Van Helsing, had placed the wafer on Mina's forehead, it had seared it, had burned into the flesh as though it had been a piece of white-hot metal. My poor darling's brain had told her the significance of the fact as quickly as her nerves received the pain of it, and the two so overwhelmed her that her overwrought nature had its voice in that dreadful scream. But the words to her thought came quickly. The echo of the scream had not ceased to ring on the air when there came the reaction and she sank on her knees on the floor in an agony of abasement. Pulling her beautiful hair over her face as the leper of old his mantle, she wailed out, Unclean, unclean! Even the Almighty shuns my polluted flesh. I must bear this mark of shame upon my forehead until the judgment day. Let me break that quote real quick and just mention that Mina has been the victim of Dracula. He has been attacking her at night and doing unspeakably evil things to her in, in his predatory ways. And of course, she's being slowly transformed into a vampire unless they intervene. Resuming the quote, they all paused. I had thrown myself beside her in an agony of helpless grief and putting my arms around held her tight. For a few minutes, our sorrowful hearts beat together whilst the friends around us turned away their eyes that ran tears silently. Then Van Helsing turned and said gravely, so gravely that I could not help feeling that he was in some way inspired and was stating things outside himself. It may be that you may have to bear that mark till God himself see fit, as he most surely shall, on the judgment day, to redress all wrongs of the earth and of his children that he has placed thereon. And O oh, Madam Mina, my dear, my dear, May we who love you be there to see when that red scar, the sign of God's knowledge of what has been, shall pass away and leave your forehead as pure as the heart we know. For so surely as we live, that scar shall pass away when God sees right to lift the burden that is hard upon us. Till then we bear our cross, as his son did in obedience to his will. It may be that we are chosen instruments of his good pleasure and that we ascend to his bidding as that other through stripes and shame through tears and blood, through doubts and fear, and all that makes the difference between God and man. There was hope in his words and comfort. End quote. Uh, that last part especially, um, there's just so wow. much gospel in there. And we don't yeah. know exactly uh, you know, how much Stoker believed, uh, whether he was Protestant, Catholic. I, Jeffrey can get into more into that. There's a lot of hodgepodge of beliefs in there. As I think Jeffrey notes, it's very ecumenical. And yet still, I would dare to call this one of the most Christian stories ever created. 
And Jeffrey is the best uh, best person we could find to explore not just Dracula, but the entire Stokerverse. Yeah, again, we don't know Bram Stoker's heart, but th- this whole attitude of Van Helsing, I, I did not expect that. I- I've not read the original Dracula, so this was really fun hearing this for the first time. It reminds me of this um, motto uh, people I work with have, that everyone would know someone who knows Jesus. And so you got to wonder, it may, you know, maybe if Bram Stoker himself didn't know Jesus, maybe he had a really good friend that knew Jesus. And so what, what, a great, uh, what a great influence that person had on Bram Stoker. It's powerful, Stephen, in that Van Helsing has this compassion for Mina after she's been bitten and is turning into a vampire, like you said. That's, uh, that's very different from the modern you know, zombie or vampire flicks where, oh, as soon as you're bitten, oh, you're dead. You know, and let's just go and take you out you know, before it gets worse. Exactly. Or a modern adaptation that would see the vampire as some kind of comedic sign of freedom. That, that is just so inverted. I mean, to, to read this is to, of course, enter the world of Stoker, who is in a, in a pseudo-Christian society that a lot of Judeo-Christian influence is there, however genuine. But you could not get a story like this out of a society that was not influenced by Christian faith in that way. So there's a lot of drawbacks to that kind of influence widespread, uh, particularly, you know, a lot of hypocrisy and such. But there's also a greater capacity for these ideas to spread. And they definitely went into the, the images and the ideas and the research that Stoker did for this story. Let's cue up a Jeffrey Ryder here. Uh, the way that I know him is that uh, he and I have actually written some stuff together for the website Christ and Pop Culture. I'm uh, no longer writing for them now, uh, but uh, he still is. And as I've even written recently, an article about the uh, CBS series, uh, the, the revival attempt of the Twilight Zone, and some of the materialistic assumptions there. The original Twilight Zone also was put together, Jeffrey argues, in a society that had some Judeo-Christian reflections scattered about. Now we're a couple generations removed from that era, and so he explores how that new version of Twilight Zone does. Writer has also written plenty about uh, Stoker and Dracula as well. We'll have all those links in the show notes. He's also a Star Trek fan and rightly understands that Deep Space Nine is amazing. So we've gotten to write a little bit about (laughs) Star Trek. Here's from his official bio. Uh, Jeffrey Ryder is an associate professor and coordinator of literature at Lancaster Bible College. He holds a BA in English from Nyack College and a PhD in English from Baylor University, along with an MA in church history from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He is the author of several academic articles on genre fiction and philosophy, and has also written for Christianity Today Online. Let's go talk with Jeffrey Ryder and interview him about The Vampire. So Jeffrey Ryder is here. He just got back from a rather scarring experience in Romania, unfortunately. Uh, But I I think uh, he must be recovered by now. And he knows a little something about Bram Stoker's Dracula and the folklore and influences that went into this very Christian-influenced horror classic. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Stephen. I'm really excited. Well, so am I, because I get to ask you, who have studied a lot more about uh, Stoker and his work, uh, not just Dracula, but his other novels, and I still feel very much like a newbie, because it was in 2018, just a couple of years ago, as we're recording now, uh, that I listened to Dracula first in uh, audiobook form. I actually have not yet read the book proper. I don't know if I can say I read it just because I listened to an audiobook. I think it counts. Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll go with that then. 
this will be a wide open spoiler podcast here, folks. Uh, we're we're going to delve deep into vampire lore and such. So that's how I, I discovered this story really, really late in life. So I'm, I'm playing catch up here with vampires and all of that. I'm curious how you discovered uh, Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula. I'm kind of an interesting phenomenon because I kind of use the back door to get into the house. I'm probably one of the very few people around for whom Dracula was actually not my first Stoker book. In fact, it was actually my third. Um, in college, I had this really great fascination with, uh, well, I still do have a fascination with ancient Egypt. And so I was looking up ancient Egyptian horrors. I had this great book called Horror, the 100 Best Books. And it had both Dracula and this other Stoker novel, The Jewel of Seven Stars, in it, which is uh, more ancient Egypt-centered. So I was like, oh, I got to check this out. So I got a hold of that. And then I found out about another, his other major weird horror work, The Lair of the White Worm, which I also quickly collected. Back then in college, I would just pick an author I like and then st start racing through all their stuff. So those were over my, I believe, my sophomore year of college. And then at the summer after that, that's when somebody had given me Dracula for a, a Christmas present. Uh, it's kind of a strange Christmas present in one sense, but I asked for it. So, and so I finally got to, to read that one over that summer and I loved it. It was amazing. It was different from what I was expecting in a lot of great ways. And at that point I was ha having now three Stoker books under my belt. I was pretty sold. Um, and like you was pretty surprised at the religious and Christian content to it as well. So I went on a hunt for the last 20 years for like anything I could find. It's hard to remember now back the way things were like in the earliest primeval ages of first Amazon and, and whatnot. When like if you liked an obscure book and I love obscure books, uh, it was like this grand quest to try to find them. And so I'll talk later probably about Stoker's collection of children's stories under the sunset, which I heard about. And at the time, the only copy I could find was like a 19th century first edition that would have cost me like 200 bucks. Now you can get it from like multiple publishers. But at the time, it was this great quest to find these kinds of books. Dracula was like one of the only ones that was easy to get. So it was like unto seeking out the uh, the secreted uh, boxes yes. of, uh, of the Count's native soil. Uh, not to destroy them, but to enjoy them in your power them in their in, a, in your own way. Exactly. Well, we'll talk in a moment too about some of the reasons why uh, either of us were surprised at the remarkable, distinctly over the top in a good way. I would say a uh, Christian influences of the story. But before that, uh, you have not only enjoyed these books, uh, you know, as as a hobby, as uh, recreationally, uh, but you you do this stuff professionally. In fact, you've also been researching for your own book about Stoker. So you've taken this pretty far. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and what you have found about uh, Stoker's origins, uh, any of the themes that may have influenced him and how he came to write this groundbreaking work. Sure. Uh, one of the interesting things about Bram Stoker is that if you were to have known about him, which you very well might have in the late 19th and early 20th centuries when he was alive and writing, you would not primarily have known of him as the author of Dracula. He published that book when he was 50 years old. And at the time, his primary job was actually the business manager for the top Shakespearean acting troupe of the day the, uh, at the Lyceum Theater. He was kind of a workaholic, uh, worked for this, the imperious Henry Irving, who was a very well-known actor at the time, and one of Stoker's top-selling books in his lifetime, actually, in 1906, was his book, 
personal reminiscences of Henry Irving, which he wrote after Irving's death. And so if you were to know in, in his own day, you would probably have been like, oh, Stoker, yeah, that's the guy from the Lyceum, right? He wrote several other books and uh, probably about a, a, depending on how you count them, a dozen or more books, novels or, or short stories, and a lot of other things as well. That being said, uh, Dracula pretty clearly was the, one of the ones he invested the most into. He began researching it seven years before he wrote it. And, and one of the great things about this is we have his working notes for them, the Dracula notes, which were uh, are housed in the uh, library in Philadelphia and, and have been finally published. I was very excited when they did this, too. They, they, they published a man, the manuscripts of them. And you can see just how much he goes through multiple, multiple different versions and drafts and, and different characters. Dracula was at one point just going to be called Count Wampir, which just is a little bit on the nose. So vampire with an accent. Clever. <laughs> so we're kind of glad that that he made the switch over to Dracula and various characters went through various iterations. I, I have a, a working theory that Homewood, Homewood is a late addition. He seems to may have been partly influenced by the Lyceum staging of a version of a King Arthur story at the time. So I'm thinking that the, his name Arthur probably has actual Arthurian resonance. So it's Arthur, Arthur Homewood, uh, Lord Godalming, uh, Lord Godalming. The, uh, the, the lamentable uh, former fiance of Lucy Westenra. Correct. Okay. Gotcha. Character. He, he's okay. one of the last ones to come in. Um, uh. Quincy Morris seems to have been at one time Brutus Morris, although he was always a Texan Stoker loves, loved Americans. I just, I'm in Texas right now and I just love, I wasn't born here. I am not native to the whole, you know, yay, Texas, all for Texas, much Texas, but I I love the representation anyway. It's it's very, very Hollywood actually. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's always, since we're doing, this is not spoiler free, you know, I just, I, there's something just hilarious about the fact that like Dracula, no, he is not killed through it. Take it there. He's stabbed by a Texan with a Bowie knife, right? That's how he yes. dies. Yes. Ordinary means there. We'll talk about that later too. It's, it's yeah. wonderful. So it was something he, he put a lot of himself in more. I mean, he's clearly researched some of his other books, uh, but none quite so significantly as that one. Um, but yeah, he, his background was a little bit of everything. I mean, he loved the theater. He loved, which is he's, he, his background originally was actually in uh, legal and clerical work. He, he His first published book is actually called Duties of Clerks of Petty Sessions in Ireland, which is uh, <laughs> where growing up in Ireland, he was uh, he essentially codified how how his job should be doing their job, uh, like a, a rule manual for everybody. And at the same time, he was starting to write short stories. He uh, was writing articles. He He basically got into theater by going to theaters and, and telling the local newspaper, you don't even have to pay me. I'll just go and, and watch them and write articles for you. And he, he did that. And through that, that's how he, Henry Irving came from London to Ireland where he was living and, and started some things. Stoker gave him some good reviews. They met each other and eventually they kind of uh, fell in with each other. And uh, he had to work so much at the Lyceum. I think almost every Stoker scholar is kind of baffled at how he had time to write anything because he, he he was always on the job it seems like irving worked his employees kind of to the bone and so uh and stoker was kind of happy to be worked that way so it's not entirely clear how he managed to have time to do those um partly by probably not having time with his family uh, he likes the, seems to like the idea of happy families but in in reality he does not seem to have actually been around his wife and son tons of times but 
that was his, he was just always wanting to publish, wanting to get things ready. And it wasn't really until his forties and fifties that he really started to be able to pick up and, and do more writing. And Dracula is easily the longest, the most researched and the more, most thoroughgoing of his works. Now that you mention it about him being so uh, into the clerical side of things, that clearly shows up in the book. And as I'll, I'll mention later, you know, it seems to me like one of those ordinary means, just people doing people things that is actually instrumental in the Count's downfall. But clearly there he was also drawing on his experience because there's so much procedure in the book. Like, or Some may think that you know, it overwhelms the story sometimes or they're talking about, especially in London, you know, we need to go here to this office and talk to this guy and find the record for that house and then go over here and look up the shipping receipts. And yep. there, there's so much of so much of those little things. But I don't hate it. I, I think it's part of the story to to know that the count, despite all his wicked superpowers, is still bound to this world. And in this world, you have those cultural facets of you can't move from one country to another without your paperwork uh it's a stake and uh brave men and uh, the sacraments and paperwork <laughs> that ultimately finish off uh the uh, the titular count there i would agree and actually you know I, I i actually think this may sound a little strange but i think this actually plays into the religious components to the the book in a in a, a way there's a great one of my favorite Stoker scholars is a guy named Clive Leatherdale, and he he has a, a good book in general on Dracula, but he's got one little chapter in it called Dracula as Christian Parody, which is probably the one of the best things in terms of Dracula and Christianity that I know of. There's not a lot, and that's one of the better ones. And one of the things he just kind of in passing points out is the ways in which Dracula really the the formation of the book of Dracula really mirrors the formation of the of the gospels or scripture. In other words, like when you walk, it's a book that is all about the making of the book, right? The actual making of the book itself is part of how they defeat the vampire. Yes. And so he's like calling attention to its kind of constructedness. So you've got this, this religiously saturated account of a battle between good and evil through characters from multiple perspectives by different characters who are asserting the reliability of their narrative. Um, in other words, there's this sort of like gospel like element to the way that it is constructed. And I think that's deliberate, or at least I think that there's some element of that deliberate. I don't know if he's like making this apologetic for scripture, but I think that there's it, it does sort of represent this apologia for being able to have reliable religiously oriented accounts in a period of time, remember where this is one of the eras when people are really first challenging the authority of, of texts and stuff like scripture. And Stoker was somebody who more than almost anybody at his time really knew like the positive elements of what human memory uh, and like witnesses and human memory was capable of. He knew it from the theater because he himself was working in the theater. So he saw people memorize large quantities of stuff all the time. He had him a journalistic background himself. So he, when he has Mina talk about, you know, how journalists, lady journalists can remember these things by doing these techniques. Like that's not abstract. That's something he himself is also aware of in, in the journalistic level. And yeah, he's a record keeper and note taker. He's somebody who keeps track of things in his own professional life beforehand. And also with a law, a law background as well. All of these are things that feed into or rely on aspects of, of memory and 
the reliability of memory. I, and I think one of the things you see a lot in, in people commenting on this as a Gothic work, if you read a lot of Gothic works, you know that a lot of them have really deeply unreliable narrators. And so people kind of jump into Dracula assuming, oh, it's Gothic work, so can't trust the narrators, right? That's how these things work. And I would contend that Stoker actually almost goes out of his way to assert the reliability of his narrators, even to the extent that they act, they themselves doubt their own narratives. So they are, they're their first skeptics and therefore the ones who become almost reliable because of their skepticism, because they're not gullible. They don't assume that everything that's happening is just happening at face value. They, they have to kind of, they take the, the position of the skeptical audience so that when it all turns out to be true in the context of the narrative, like, it actually ends up being even more verifiable. Well, that's what surprised me in my second read, especially, whereas in my first read, I may not have noticed and thought, okay, well, this is kind of a, you know, an older equivalent of the found footage conceit. If you're talking about a mm -hmm. recent, uh, you know, motion picture trend. Uh, but in this case, the form is part of the substance is that there's these people getting together who may doubt their own stories, particularly because it's so traumatic and so wicked, but what particularly the Harkers are suffering through. Right. And then once they get together and you discover, all right, here is some, you know, good men and good women who are reliable, the, the together, their narratives, they are pulling their narratives together. They say, leave no stone unturned. You know, every detail matters. And then it's through the tracking of those details in universe that everyone's able to realize, okay, we're on the same page here. You know, we're, we're going to put together our, our superhero team. What was it you called them? The crew of light crew of and light. We're yeah. we going to stamp out uh, this, this wicked undead menace, which just delighted me uh, through both of my reads. And it feels so real. And it also very happily overturned this perception that I had going in is that, okay, this is the old book. You know, this is, uh, this is the original uh, Dracula before he was turned into a serial mascot and, you know, a, a comic uh, figure, you know, even more melodramatic than the original. And, and yet when I read the book, I was so happy to find, oh my goodness, you know, he, he okay. He may not explode in sunlight, you know, like a far side cartoon. Uh, he's just weakened, you know, it's a little bit more realistic there. He, he can't shape shift or doesn't have super strength and he's still constrained to sleep in the soil of his native land. Uh, he's not a sympathetic figure in the book, barely at the end, like just enough to make it count. If you'll pardon the pun that I didn't intend to do. <laughs> I was really hoping to get through without a count pun. Uh, uh, uh. But he can turn into a bad, he can, oh, and he can turn into a wolf too. You know, it's a werewolf, big deal. And they can just do one of those things. Like he's got all of those powers mm -hmm. and that just overturned my myth that the, that the old book would somehow tame it down or something and that all that stuff had just been added on through the lore uh, over time. Uh, he can control the night creatures uh, he can, and he can turn into the night creatures. But well, I'm just curious, what are some other general myths that people have just because of all these different iterations in pop culture and the cartoons and the, and the parodies and the sequels, like the universal movies. And then later on, uh, I guess it was the hammer movies with Christopher Lee. Like we weren't going to talk about, you know, Dracula movies as much, but I'm just, curious about demystifying the count and getting back to that original stoker vision i mean i think that they're the biggest changes to me as we'll talk about in, in, in a little bit will be really almost more the ideological changes but i think they're like you you named a lot of the distinctions one of the interesting things about stoker most of what he came up with like i said he researched it heavily and and you know granted the level of 
folklore scholarship at the time maybe isn't what it was today, but I mean, he did a lot of research into a lot of things about vampires at that time. And so a lot of it fits pretty well with what were kind of the accepted tropes. The biggest thing that he either, I don't know if he quite creates it. I don't know if he's the first person to do this, but he's definitely one of the first and one of the big popularizers is the idea of the vampirism as contagion, which is now one of the, the top things we think about vampirism, right? You, you get sucked on by the vampire and you turn into one. That was very uncommon in vampire literature and vampire lore up until that time. Traditionally, in, in older cultures, you become a vampire based on something that happened either at your birth or during your lifetime or at your death. So like if you were if you had red hair or if you were you died and like a cat walked over your grave or you committed suicide, uh, those kinds of things were the things that would turn somebody into a vampire not this one person turning you into another vampire. That was kind of one of the first major uh, elements that, that Stoker kind of contributes, as well as just giving a, a face to like a, a really engaging vampire character. There were a couple of other major vampires before Stoker did. There's um, one just that's just called The Vampire uh, which by John Polidori, which is uh, who was uh, working for Lord Byron, the old romantic poet, and he actually based his vampire on Lord Byron. And then there was a, a, a popular one in the mid 19th century called Varney the Vampire, who's just this weird, monstrous guy uh, that one is not generally regarded as a very great book. Um, and then one great female vampire from the 19th century, Carmilla, in, in Jay Sheridan Le Fanu's book, Carmilla. But uh, really, all of the everything kind of comes together in this, this great particular text in uh, Dracula. So he did a lot of stuff with that. Also interesting, you know, he popularized the 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 historical figure of Dracula, and it's worth noting, Stoker probably knew almost nothing about the historical Dracula. He he knew he got the name eventually. He probably didn't even know that he was like Vlad the Impaler, which is what we love to talk about now. Uh, right. his knowledge of actual of the actual historical Vlad, just there's very little evidence that he could have known that much about him so it just kind of happened to work out really well uh that he ended up seizing upon somebody whose name he used and it turns out that the guy himself actually really was almost that bad but uh, if you look at closely at the descriptions of dracula in the book they don't really match up uh at least physically and, and historically they don't quite match up with vlad dracula vlad the impaler but it works anyway. So, uh, and he certainly never would have gone to Rome, gone to Wallachia, or gone to what we now call, you know, Castle Dracula or, or those areas. He he never got that far east. He knew some people maybe who may have traveled there, but uh, he never got that far. Um, but I think the biggest change that that comes up, the biggest difference, and you mentioned this, is the Dracula is just. I mean, he's just bad. He's like really evil. He's kind of the sum of every Victorian fear and insecurity, like all wrapped up into one, and. So I think one of the fascinating things, we'll talk more about this down the line, is I, I always call Dr the character of Dracula like the great cultural cipher. You can basically like tell what your culture values by how they portray their Draculas. So Stoker's Dracula is just a, a villain. He's just a bad guy and uh, like an evil, evil, evil figure. And that's because Stoker is fairly Victorian in his approach to things. And, and he, he does see his characters as flawed, but good overall, good men and women who are attempting to defeat an evil. That, that, that seems very tame and boring to our culture now. And so, of course, we've got to find ways to problematize all of this. That's what our, our pop culture iterations now try to do. But the original Dracula, is, I mean, he's not a sympathetic figure. 
No, I, I would suggest that it, it almost frightens me that an adaptation would want to make him into a sympathetic figure. You right. know, the, the ultimate bad boy, uh, or either that or just a, a completely silly cartoon character. Now, I'm not going to be a legalist about this, but it, it does bear the question in asking, okay, why do you want to make this disordered masculinity, this inverted power uh, in, into something sympathetic? And we'll get to, you know, the idea of maybe your modern vampirism here in a little bit. I love the the realism that Stoker was able to put in there. At, at least it has, you know, I've never been on the Orient Express. I've never been to Romania or you know, any of these places, and certainly none of us have ever been to these places at that time. But his descriptions, like, you know, the details that he gets into with the paperwork and this train goes here and that ship lands there, all of that just works and kind of grounds the story and makes it believable. And that combined with all the atmosphere he describes, like a Jonathan Harker's, uh, you know, carriage ride to the castle, it just sets it up so beautifully. The twist that there was no driver no separate driver after all you know dracula does its own work uh and then the easter eggs at least i i feel like a lot more leaped out of me just in the second read uh, particularly the symbol of the red eyes which i hadn't seen before and I, I kept meaning to research you know these two glowing eyes in the dark like well you know that's exactly the same type of shape that the vampire leaves on you if you get bitten and yeah. i'm curious if there's any anything else that dracula scholars or your own research has turned up like just in the form of uh, Easter eggs in the story. The the one great thing that is, is frequently commented on, of course, is the the play on the nature of, of mirroring, right? Because he has no he has no reflection. You do a few things that way. So some people have attempted to one of the things that some scholars will try to do is is to suggest that there is actually a mirroring between Dracula and the vampire hunters. This is one of those attempts to kind of like reduce the gap uh morally speaking between uh dracula and the hunters oh i see you I, are I, just like me you right. we are so much alike you're, you're like you guys are are the real monsters and you see that i mean and i think really the great uh, envisioning of this you can find in the coppola version the bram stoker's dracula the 1992 one which plot wise is easily the closest one to the book but thematically you know inverts it in many ways and it's definitely taking that approach I would tend to see, you know, mirrors tend to be a symbol also of uh, self, you know, of awareness of self-knowledge and um, especially of spiritual insight and in kind of like the fairy tale-ish realm or, or whatnot. And the, the fact that Dracula casts no reflection that you can't see him suggests that lack of reflectiveness on him, that, that, that his, his soullessness is manifested through his not having an image in the mirror. I think that's probably more where he's going with that one. The the oh one of the big things that you see in not just in vamp always in vampire myth or but also in a lot of other kind of spiritual things it, it goes way back you can see this in, in Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem Christabel which has kind kind of a psychic vampire like in in Geraldine uh, which is that you you have to invite the evil in they can't cross thresholds unless they are invited and that I think is a really telling and astute observation about evil the nature of evil that it is something that good is, is actually stronger when it realizes what it is. Um, and that the figure of Dracula, and, and this becomes something you see in a lot of vampire myths. I, I'm surprised how, how much you still see this in vampire myths. I remember watching, yeah, I used to watch Bobby the Vampire Slayer all the time. And that was, uh, you know, oftentimes a, a little bit of an element there too, that uh, 
you had to the the vampires had to be invited they couldn't just like walk across the threshold with impunity um so i like that element of it well it is incidental or intentional uh it does seem to be a a a reflection of of a biblical idea is that someone must at least at first consciously choose to sin you have to invite in you know an indulgence of that temptation and then once it's there you may not want it to be there uh but it will become a parasite and it will kill you uh which by the way i was a little uncertain uh, even on the second read whether you could turn into a vampire without dying or if you just like level up as a vampire you know get the powers you know you're an undead vampire because uh, although Lucy dies, uh, she then becomes the undead, but they are concerned about her biting someone even before then. So uh, maybe I still need to figure out to know just exactly how that, that aspect of the lore works. That's a great question, and I don't know that that's actually fully answered. You, you, because you don't actually get that many people turning into vampires in the novel, um, I don't know that it's always... And because Stoker was kind of like drawing from multiple different trajectories for his vampires, like using different lore, like it's not just like he picked one and stuck with it. He, he takes several different lores and kind of throws them together. And you see this in, in a lot of Stoker's researched uh, horror fantasy ones that he sometimes if you scrutinize them too closely, you can find ways in which either he uh, the logic doesn't quite work out all the way or he kind of like paints himself into a narrative corner somehow that he's not quite exactly sure how to get out and, and creates a couple of extra rules to get himself out of it uh, which is pretty common in, in fantasy and horror writers generally speaking but it's uh, certainly something that you see there so i i don't know that that's actually 100 percent clear uh which one is which in there it's a good question gotcha that makes me feel better because uh, then i thought okay maybe it was just me missing something uh, the author is more concerned, uh, certainly through most of the story, in in focusing on the heroes. I mean, the name of the novel is Dracula. You know, Dracula captures the public imagination, but I'm more enthralled by the heroes. I'm I'm unfortunately not nearly cool enough uh, to get a lot of uh, delight from the villain. Like uh, the villain is there, the dragon is there to be destroyed, and destroy they do. Uh, this crew of light, uh, Jonathan and Mina Harker, uh, married couple for the win, by the way. Yep. The, the famed Dr. Van Helsing, Texan Quincy Morris, uh, Arthur Holmwood. Uh, they fight the Count using wh- what I would count uh, generally is three methods. They use their sacred weapons, which, of course, are very famous. Yep. The consecrated wafer, uh, the host, uh, the Catholic belief in transubstantiation, meaning that this is the literal, in some sense, uh, body of Christ uh, used in the Mass. But they also get themselves a bunch of Winchesters, <laughs> a Bowie knife. So, you know, you've, you've got kind of almost a latter stage Western here, almost. Uh, you've even got some stage coaches and chase scenes later on. And then we've already mentioned the other ordinary memes, uh, means uh, Dracula goes down with paperwork and procedure and some really good detective work. Oh, yes. There's actually uh, a, a pop culture writer, Lauren Estelman, who, who wrote a book called uh, Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula, where where he actually like has Sherlock Holmes kind to trying to track down what turns out to be Dracula through all of these murders going on through London. Yeah, so there is absolutely a kind of a detective element, and, and yes, there is all these other means. So to kind of go through a couple of them, first of all, okay, Stoker he was interested when he was growing up in in college and stuff. He was he was president of the historical and the philosophical society and all that stuff, but he actually wasn't a great student. He was more of a jock, like he was really well known for his athletic prowess and he was fairly well built he was very actually he he grew up as a kid he was sickly he was bedridden for his first several years of life 
but then kind of recovered pretty dramatically and so had a reputation for being uh, kind of extremely athletic. And he plays this out in a lot of his his heroes and his characters. And and he also, yeah, so he, he likes knives and he, he likes guns. And he really loves, Stoker loves women who pack heat. I, I think virtually every one of his heroines in his books, I've read over a, like about a dozen of his books and almost every one of them, the girl gets a gun at some point. Now, see, that sounds like something that a modern director would be like, oh, he just, he just put that in there because he wanted his, you know, modern uh, action hero. Like, no, M- Mina packs heat at the end. You know, she, she is an active player. She doesn't, uh, they don't always get to, to shoot off. Sometimes they do. Uh, some, you know, uh, Marjorie Drake in Mystery of the Sea actually gets to take out a few pirates with her gun at one point, I think. Um, it's, yeah, it's a fairly common trope of his. So he, yeah, he likes this kind of aggressive way of, of, of going about things. It kind of matches with his personality. But like you said, there's the other elements as well. There's the, the regular clerical means, which as we've talked about, he also has that background. And yes, absolutely, the religious means. Well, the, so there's kind of two traditional vampire trajectories. There's the the folkloric things that are not necessarily overtly Christian or religious, you know, the garlic and, and things like that. Those are ones Wild Rose. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, if you look back at the vampire traditions, um, you know, many of the, it's hard to say for sure, because we may be talking about traditions that emerged before there was written you know, documents in some of these parts of Eastern Europe. But it, what probably somewhat happens anyway is that you have these old folkloric things that may predate Christian Christianity or, or coexist alongside Christianity in its kind of more pre-secular phase. But then the church kind of comes in and presents itself as a way of fighting these spiritual evils. And so many of the most powerful weapons used in the Vampire Hunters toolkit, therefore, become religious in or religious in nature. And so that is convenient if you're wanting to write a religiously oriented uh, vampire text, which he clearly seems to be doing. There's the, it, it's interesting. So the, the big question about the, the, the consecrated host, right, this is one that that kind of drives critics a little bit nuts trying to figure out because he clearly goes to great lengths to show it as something significant and, and, and serious. Uh, but, but I mean, first of all, there on a purely practical level, if Van Helsing is indeed Catholic, he's never explicitly stated that way. I mean, Stoker grew up Anglican, even though he was in Ireland and, uh, but there's clearly some high, some ritualism. It could be high church Anglicanism, or it could be actual Catholicism. Uh, if he is indeed Catholic, first of all, he he has no actual authority to to establish the consecrated host. Only a, only a priest could do that and and wield that. And even if they were like to use the body of Christ, the transubstantiated body of Christ, as essentially like you make it into like a paste that you use as a weapon, is it's hard not to see that as somewhat irreverent. Um, and so it is kind of a, a a tricky thing to navigate. Now Stoker does, in his language, try to to talk about it in such a way that he sees. The, that he, he talks about Van Helsing seeing it very reverently and approaching it on that level. My best guess is that this is Stoker, who is kind of slightly outside of the Catholic tradition, but aware of the Catholic tradition, kind of using it because uh, they're a kind of an ecumenical group. It, it, Homewood clearly is, it, it seems to be this kind of, you know, Lord God, I mean, he, he, he seems to be kind of traditional kind of Anglican and and Harker refers to himself, I think, as a good English churchman at one time. And he seems to be very much this kind of at the beginning, he seems to be this very generic uh, Church of England guy who probably believes in, you know, the moral teachings of the church, but isn't really that interested in the the spiritual dimensions, doesn't really think that things like that happen until they start happening to him. Um, 
so it's it, part of the character's own journey is toward this Christianity, but Stoker is, is kind of non-sectarian in his approach to it. He has some other ritual elements, but also some things that are more characteristic with kind of a lower church Anglicanism. Um, there's probably a little bit of Eastern Orthodoxy going on in there. There are sections of Eastern Europe too. I, having studied Stoker's ecclesiology, some like looking through all of his various books and stuff, you know, we don't have tons of information. Stoker doesn't give you a lot of direct biographical information or autobiographical information about his religious perspectives. But I, I would say, you know, he, he does not seem to have been sharply partisan toward one side or the other. We know that his wife became Catholic kind of late, like in the early 1900s, a few years after Dracula was done. We don't know that that ever happened with Stoker himself, but he seems pretty happy to kind of like draw from a variety of different religious or Christian traditions together which again is just one more element of the way in which the body, the, the, the group of vampire hunters work. And, and to just add one more thing, I don't want to talk too much, but like one thing that I, I find very interesting is that essentially, you know, so Dracula is clearly this demonic devilish figure. Right. And one of the things that I was always interested in is if you have this antichrist figure, like where is your Christ figure? And it, then it, it kind of dawned on me, well, that they are all that they are. Essentially, yes. They are, they are a church. Basically they are the body of Christ, the collective body of Christ. If you count both of the women, including Lucy, who becomes at the very end a very important part in them hunting the, the vampire hunter down in her last writings, uh, if you count them all, you get seven total. Um, oh, that's true. Harassing. There we go. Even the number of completion there. Yes. Technically, you get six plus one because the uh, Lucy is kind of like dies and is finally at rest, very much depicted as being at rest in a very nature-oriented scene when they finally you know restore her soul to her um again so this the seven six plus one uh thing i think very significant probably i i, I suspect that's probably deliberate on, on stoker's part well, various adaptations that at least from what i've seen i have not seen a lot of dry acts i've not seen a single dracula movie just some clips mainly in preparation for this podcast uh but there's one video that i found very useful in terms of trying to figure out okay which, which of these adaptations is most faithful to the book, even if it isn't able to reflect the books and many themes, because it's, I mean, it's a, it's a long book. You can't get it all in, in a movie. Right. But from what I've seen, some adaptations will minimize, you know, some of the sacred weapons, you know, kind of take off uh, on the Stoker who was already taking off on kind of this mystical power of the cross and some things like that. Uh, and, and then others, you know, seem, uh, I guess if you go further in popular culture, uh, it seems like, oh, the only thing to kill a vampire you know, is more emphasis on the stake through the heart or, right. you know, a, a silver bullet from a gun or something like that. But it's not just these, you know, magic weapons that, that Stoker is, is playing with. I, I love, I mean, okay, Victorian melodrama notwithstanding. I mean, yes, thank you, Dr. Van Helsing. You really, really, really have a lot of respect for Mina. I'm, although I don't complain about that. Like, I love, I love his, his, um, his heroic fatherliness there. And then inspiring that and the other men, but there is a healthful reflection of humanity in this uh, this church analog. If we want to go so far as to call it that, there is healthy masculinity and healthy femininity, uh, and yet you know Jonathan Harker is is weeping and crying, you know, violating the uh, the conventions of what a strong man should be, you know, and then he's got a knife in in the you know by the finish. Uh, and then uh, Mina is uh, doing the research and collecting the records and memorizing the train tables and all these things, and and yet is still uh, the representation of of a, of, a, of a godly woman. And there's respect between these people, and there's a genuine love and camaraderie there. And I just love this respect for friendship 
and uh, the you know the law of God basically versus the disordered perversions of the count, and uh, particularly if you bring in then his uh, his three wives, his uh, his she vampires, his little harem there at his castle, uh, the contrast becomes even more clear. Yeah, absolutely. I think the interesting thing about Stoker in one sense has very traditional Victorian perspectives on masculinity and femininity. And then at the same time, also monkeys around with it in his, his own way too. So most of Stoker's books involve a woman who has, has a gun at some point. And most of Stoker's books have a man who is, is crying or showing strong emotion at some point. In fact, Stoker, his first meeting with his eventual boss, Henry Irving, or one of his first meetings was this backstage one and, and, and Irving recites this poem the dream of eugene aram in this very dramatic way and apparently stoker was like so moved by it that he got like like hysterical like he actually was like almost overcome by this reading and so he was somebody who could feel really strong emotion in a way that would have traditionally been associated in a, in a feminine way they refer to mina's uh, intelligence as her man's brain um uh, now i think there are some ways in which stoker is kind of so he he, he does kind of revert to the masculine and feminine mean in, in one sense and that it is it is really primarily in the very final sequences it is the men it is is harker and morris kind of like hacking their way through gypsies to get to uh dracula at the end and 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 harker particularly i think in stoker's view kind of has to do this because um he has been kind of like weaker hysterical almost emasculated early on there he's kind of right and we started with him yeah we need to finish his arc yeah, yeah. he, he kind of needs this he he does and and i and so that's kind of set up that way and um but yeah it, it is a kind of a running theme like stoker's understanding even though he may have these very what one might see as traditional victorian gender roles with with men as kind of like the leaders the initiators the assertive or uh, aggressive ones uh and women as more domestic in some senses it's more complex than than just that in fact actually from a from viewpoint of what in his Stoker's time would have been called the new woman, the kind of emancipated. Uh, oh, he actually mentions woman. that in the book at some point. Yeah, uh, yeah, they, they, when they, the ladies they, are writing their letters to each yeah. other, they're talking about, here's what the new woman would do. Exactly. That we've been about. And so, so you would like, in one sense, Mina is, seems per, superficially more like the new woman because she's the one who's actually like really competent in doing all this stuff, but it's actually, you know, she's the one who actually makes fun of new women and, and Lucy uh, who is until the very end, you know, kind of the flighty and less competent one is the one who is also more transgressive in that that way. So uh, Stoker never lets you off easy with, with being able to quite caricature his uh, gender role, even though he clearly has gender roles in these ideas. He, he doesn't let you off easy in terms of like him just being some kind of like misogynist or or you know, like taking this, this viewpoint that women are, are incompetent. Clearly they're not clearly, you know, uh, you know, Mina is hugely influential. Like they can't beat Dracula without her. Um, and, and again, this is fairly consistent across his corpus. Like he, he will often have his uh, heroines get in on the action in one way or another somehow. Uh, and so, and, and certainly have some very strong moments um i think of uh mimi watford in the lair of the white worm when she's facing down edgar caswall uh, or marjorie drake in the mystery of the sea i think to Viserion in the lady of the shroud has some of that too so uh it's a pretty consistent theme actually across his, his elements or across his works 
Well, you make me want to go check out more of those works, uh, the the horror as well as uh, the other genres in which he dabbled. Uh, it's funny, I heard you say at the, at the beginning that uh, he was better known for genres that were completely different from this one. And now, of course, you know the name Bram Stoker is synonymous with Dracula and all the associated imagery. So uh, what a difference a century of <laughs> marketing can make. And I guess it doesn't help, uh, hurt to have some of this in the public domain, too, at least. Uh, which which has led to you know we can we could talk plenty and probably have a whole episode if we had time to discuss you know the legacy of Dracula the novel the character the mythos uh, in popular culture at large because it is fantastical truth you know my interest is more in the reception or lack thereof among Christian audiences you know right up to and including you know modern American uh, evangelicals you know which which I am even before I read Dracula I, I could see reflections of him however carefully glimpsed uh, in uh, even popular uh, Christian culture. Uh, but before starting on that, like, I mean, even um, I was recently re-watching one of the Harry Potter movies and Lord Voldemort, I mean, is very much, there's there's so much of Dracula in him. Like the movies even have uh, the villains able to turn to mist and, you know, reassemble in front of you. And he's not turning into a bat or anything, but... Uh, even his design in the film looks like the uh, the silent film uh, Nosferatu. Nos- I'm going to mangle this pronunciation. Nosferatu, yeah, Nosferatu. Yeah, I mean he he he's got the bald head. He's got the black robe. He he basically looks like that alternative version of Dracula. And I I by the way, if you're wanting a good pop, like of all the adaptations of Dracula, honestly, Nosferatu is probably one of the the best ones. Even though, I mean, plot wise, it's it's only only the bare outline remains. But this is the old 1922 silent version, which is such a funny story because it was actually uh, the director F. W. Murnau and the company he was working with wanted to do Dracula. They actually approached Stoker's widow in uh, about the possibility, and she said no, she wasn't going to give the rights up to it at that time. So they went ahead and filmed it anyway and just changed the name of a bunch of the characters while she kind of sued the pants off of them. And they were actually supposed to destroy every copy of the film under that ruling. And a few survived, which is is great for cinematic history because it's actually it's a cinematic classic. And again, I I think that is one where at least the the idea of the vampire as this monstrous and, and frightening figure is preserved, which is one reason why I kind of like that. Another pop culture Dracula that kind of I was just thinking of when I was kind of trying to think through that is is a little bit near and dear to my heart, but also not uh, as often recognized uh, is kind of one of the great black sheeps of the later Star Trek movies. Star Trek Nemesis, if you watch that, is heavily, oh, of heavily course. with Dracula. I mean, yeah, it's uh, Tom Hardy. Yeah, yes. Tom Hardy as, as this clone of Picard, this mirror for Picard who is wanting to drink his blood. Right. I mean, he's, he's he needs his blood to survive. He is. And the the imagery is very gothic and, you know, everything that he he wears, uh, even down to really, when you think about it, uh, Riker and Troy, right? The way Riker and Troy interact is very similar to the Harkers in the novel Dracula. Dracula gets his DNA everywhere uh, and he doesn't have to bite anyone. I had not even thought of those parallels. That's so true. So I, I think one of the things that happens is that. So let me give you a quick arc for the reception of Dracula as, as a book and as a character over the last 120 years or so to kind of show why, why it kind of goes the way it does and also why probably a lot of Christians weren't as engaged with it at the time. Remember, Dracula at the time was read. It was regarded, you know, fairly well. It was seeming it was kind of just a generic thing. It was not particularly shocking to Victorians. 1890s, by that time, you could do horror pretty. Actually, 1890s is one of my favorite decades for literary horror. I mean, there's just so much great stuff going on there. 
and it's worth noting as a little side note that you did not have to put religious references by that time in things. In other words, you weren't like tipping your hat to the culture to include uh, religious references in works of the 1890s. There are lots of horror stories from the 1890s that make no pretense about interacting with Christian elements to them. So Stoker is very clearly deliberately doing that. Uh, he, he, he was not having to like uh, make a nod to the culture of his time. Uh, but it was not hugely regarded, at, like I said, at, at that time. It becomes really popular in the 20s and especially, of course, in the 30s, following Bela Lugosi's portrayal in the 1931. There's actually was a Spanish one filmed at the on the same set at the same time in 1931 as well, uh, which some people think is actually a better version of the, the Dracula book. But from that point on, you know, from I'd say from its earliest times in the early 20th century and certainly through the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, Dracula is regarded as a popular novel. That is, it is pop culture. It is not regarded as a serious work of literature. Um, so if you study the history of study of it, like the, the scholarship, which is partly my angle in it, what you see is there's almost nothing about it from for almost the first 70 years of its existence. What wow. happens is in the late 60s and early 70s, following some of the ways that literary theory comes out, there's a lot of things I'm not a huge fan of about continental literary theory and where it comes from in the 1960s and 1970s but one of the things they did do was to open up the the ideas of what could be considered literature so things which had been thought of as kind of like subliterate or just popular in the first half of the 20th century could now be considered fair game for study the the problem is that that's happening at exactly the same time when the great critical emphases are these the very restricted to kind of like psychoanalytic race class gender those kinds of things and i think some of them have a few good elements in there actually ironically i think it's the the marxist interpretations of dracula from the early times that i like best because they at least really place a lot of emphasis on looking at the the, the crew and and the, the vampire hunters and how they work together but in literary criticism of the 70s the 80s and the 90s there's not a lot of religious literary criticism in general like christians were not in the academy that significantly at that time and uh, at least not as heavily engaged with it. So it's really at kind of the birth of the dawn of the 21st century when you really start to see serious critical attention being paid to Stoker's religious works and also uh, Stoker's religious elements in Dracula. And also that's the same time when people start really focusing on not just on Dracula, but on Stoker's other works as also worthy of study, which makes sense because if you read some of his other writings, the religious elements are even more overt. Uh, and so all of that dovetails to me, I'd say within the last especially maybe the last 10, 15 years in scholarship, there's been a lot more emphasis on this. And I think that paralleling, not the same thing, but paralleling this is kind of like the pop culture realm of, of Christianity and uh, genres as well. So it, there's a lot of great horror that has religious and often overtly Christian elements from the late 18th and the, and the 19th century, but that gets like Dracula, that it's just kind of lost or elided over the course of time. So horror starts to be regarded as this very unchristian thing in, in, you know, in the 70s and the 80s and stuff. I can remember my old youth group experiences in, in the 80s and 90s where like anything along those lines was just almost equal synonymized with de demonic uh, elements. My, my own family was was not of that route, but certainly uh, there were I, I knew many people who were along those lines. Um, now, you brought out one 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 possible influence. I'm going to throw us one interesting one. You brought out the possibility, I think, of C.S. Lewis, maybe that um, Lewis may be familiar with Stoker's work in some ways. Yes. And I, this is the sort of thing where I read that. and I think, OK, like I, I don't want to go off and say, oh, I, I found a thing. I found a literary quote. I 
I found a thing where Lewis is referencing Stoker, but I haven't been able to find anyone else who drew the parallel here. And I noticed it when I was listening to uh, Renfield, who is the madman. Uh, he is a, an inmate at uh, Dr. Seward's asylum, uh, who is actually recruited by Dracula and uh, has a lot of very freaky uh, beliefs about absorbing life. And like, you know, there, there's a method to his madness and it's deeply spiritual, very, very dark spiritual there. A lot of ideas about absorption and some things that did seem to uh, maybe get uh, get absorbed in turn by C.S. Lewis in some of his works later. And in Dracula chapter 18, Renfield is uh, being actually uh, sane for a moment. Uh, he's trying to escape and he, he's begging our heroes to let him go. And he says, uh, you don't know what you do by keeping me here. I am speaking from the depths of my heart, of my very soul. You don't know whom you wrong or how, and I may not tell. Woe is me. I may not tell. And here's the relevant part. By all you hold sacred, by all you hold dear, by your love that is lost, by your hope that lives for the sake of the Almighty, take me out of this and save my soul from guilt. And that brought to my mind the plea of another madman uh the hero prince rillian who is enchanted uh, brainwashed in uh c.s lewis's chronicle of narnia the fourth uh, the silver chair rillian has been captured by actually a rather vampire-like uh, character the the emerald witch the lady of the green kirtle she has taken him underground and he actually is enchanted by a silver chair he's insane most of the time and then when he's tied there it's re-enchanting him and he has moment of sanity and so he's he's pleading to our other heroes once and for all, I adjure you to set me free by all fears and all loves, by the bright skies of Overland, by the great lion, by Aslan himself, I charge you. It just, it seemed a little bit too familiar. It's the by, the by, the by, and then for the sake of the almighty, Renfield said. So I don't know if that was a thing, but it wouldn't surprise me if it turned out that it is. Uh, you know, Lewis, I mean, you, there's so many, and, and you, uh, Silver Chair is near and dear to my heart. It's probably my favorite of the Narnia Chronicles, and so I would not at all be surprised. Uh, another Chronicle of Narnia, I think, actually shows the imprint of another of Stoker's works. Uh, his I've mentioned or alluded to the Jewel of Seven Stars, which is his, his ancient Egyptian one. So if you compare the two, you compare that to The Magician's Nephew. So both of these books involve a person in Edwardian England or turn of the century England who is doing something called the Great Experiment, capital G, capital E, trying to bring, uh, which results in the bringing back of a giant, beautiful magician warrior queen into the contemporary world. I mean, the, oh. both of those books are about that. Wow. Um, and so oh, they are Lewis <laughs> use scallywag. Yeah, I, I, I cannot tell. So I cannot tell for sure. I mean, I, I looked through his Lewis's letters to see if there's any direct Stoker references in them and, and there aren't. So it's still circumstantial, but I would not be surprised. I mean, Lewis is one of those people who, you know, pop culture wise, you know, you're always shocked by what you learn that he's read. And so, oh, he read very widely and even uh, an early adopter of enjoying some of the pop Sci Scientific fiction, it used to be called, uh, magazines. I was re recently rereading his essay collection where he, he and some friends are talking about the development of that genre and how they see it maturing and some of the scary directions it could go. But they're very familiar with pop level authors, you know, going back to more of the pulp magazines. And, and then they start to see where it starts to grow up. I, uh, Lewis actually, Lewis subscribed to, uh, some of those, those pops and actually I silver chair, I, I would contend he was actually familiar with the story that the twilight zone episode to serve man was based on, 
which in the silver chair you see you've got the you, you they got the cookbook about cooking of course fiction. the giant's you cookbook know, yeah that one was published in i think it was the magazine of science fiction fantasy and science fiction just like probably a few months before lewis seems to have been working on the silver chair so before it was turned into a twilight zone episode so I do three that. words it's a cookbook <laughs> yeah, it's a cookbook. that's it that, that that has nothing to do with dracula that i just tossed that out there that's a little extra nugget I would say, you know, so so I think there's this is the right time to be looking uh, uh, for Christians coming back to Dracula. And certainly, as as a as a teacher at Christian colleges, I have always had very good experiences teaching it. And um, I will say one one person who seems to be I haven't had a chance to read this yet, but there is a a, a good sign of of engagement with Dracula at a religious perspective. The Catholic publisher Ignatius Ignatius Press publishes a lot of Chesterton stuff. Uh, they have a series of literary editions uh, called the Ignatius Critical Editions. They just came out with one on Dracula. And the editor, Eleanor Borg Nicholson, is a novelist herself, and she actually has a a novel called, uh, oh, what is it, a, a Bloody Habit. It's about a, a Father Brown-like priest who hunts vampires. So I haven't had a chance to read that. It's on my list of things to look at. But uh, that that looks like, I mean, that's Catholic, not evangelical, but at least it's kind of getting into something where, you know, on a pop culture level, we might be seeing some more people being willing to use uh, that that kind of explicitly Dracula oriented and certainly uh, vampire like quality uh, more generally in their works. I am so down with that. And and as we're drawing to a close here, however, reluctantly, one thing that I loved, well, loved is a very strong word. I, I would say that I, I was profoundly moved by it was just the language of the vampire as a creature. I've earlier referred to this this disordered masculinity. You know, Dracula is a figure who abuses life, who sacrifices his humanity for power. He is insatiable. He is sensual. Uh, there, there's such a a um, a perverted, uniquely male sensuality about him. You know, the the predator side of him. The, you know, the power that he has, like physically as well as emotionally, to say nothing of his superpowers, uh, for lack of a better term. But all of that just really gave me a picture to try to wrap my imagination around uh, what are so many accounts in the world, in, in the church, unfortunately, and elsewhere of people who behave in a manner that I could only describe as vampire-like, you know, preying on the innocent, you know, not just um, spiritual abuse or those kinds of things, but even a lot of the sexual abuse instances that we see. And I'm grieved to read those headlines and especially more so, you know, if, if they ever uh, approach situations that I know. And the only term that I have, the only language I have now to describe that unique kind of darkness is, okay, that, that is like a vampire. Like I see this evil undead creature of the night sinking his fangs into someone's neck and it's terrible. And then especially the idea of the contagion of this particular sin uh, is so vivid to me. You know, the abused can then grow up and having been subjected to this assault uh, can in themselves also become an abuser. And then on and on the contagion goes. It makes me long for good heroes, you know, good men and women armed with Winchesters and uh, paperwork and sacred tools to dispatch the vampire, uh, not as an act of vengeance, but as an act of, of mercy almost, but also firm in their resolve. I would love to see more of that in, uh, in Christian made stories. Maybe not. I mean, I'm not saying we need more vampire books around here necessarily, 
but I would love to see more stories that would reflect that level of evil, that level of honesty about what evil is and the, the strange captivation of it, but also by comparison, make the good shine all the brighter. Yeah, that's a wonderful uh, point and a, a sadly necessary one. And I think you bring out really good observations. I mean, for all of the attempts, as I, I've kind of alluded to, to, to kind of glamorize the vampire figure, Dracula in particular, he's like the bad boy. He's kind of like we live in the American dream, right? He's got he's got the money, he's got power, he's got women and stuff like that. But he is also like deeply evil. And, you know, I mean, he goes to the brides and feeds them a baby apparently and then he like essentially rapes mina in that one scene when he kind of comes uh in and and puts uh, harker to sleep like yeah so i mean the parallels are pretty actually pretty striking to what you're saying this sort of parasitic element and um i think that's a uh, you bring out a really good point also which is i think part of our problem is we have this sort of very atrophied and and weak view of, of goodness and, and beauty. And I, I'm glad that you brought up like being interested in the heroes. I think one of the sad things about modern readings of Dracula that I see in a lot of the criticism I read is the idea that they are just bland or uninteresting. And I think that's because we have unfortunately gotten to the, the point where, unfor- where our perspective of the world is such that like acting virtuously, acting in a good way, seems unappealing somehow and i i think some of the great christian writers c.s lewis would be obviously the greatest one of, of these in many ways um and tolkien i mean lewis and tolkien do a very good of the job of this like trying to portray goodness in very attractive and profound ways i think to a certain extent this is also true in uh, like harry potter would be another one i think that uh many of the good characters are are portrayed as yeah i I love uh, some of those early books with dumbledore the way he's a very good character but also a he's a good character and an engaging one but also a good character and a a, you know a virtuous one a a positive uh figure and i think that you know the vampire hunters part you know some particularly i think van helsing and mina are particularly stand out but you know quincy morris is is fun too like in all of them Val, uh, all of them sort of contribute their own different things to the task. And I think it's kind of sad that that is regarded as generic or, or bland or uninteresting, whereas Dracula is somehow looked on as, you know, appealing. I mean, I, I'm all for a good villain. Don't get me wrong. You know, I love Khan and uh, whatnot, but he, they're still bad, like they're bad guys. And their attraction is not the attraction of something like, oh, I would, I'm interested in like being like this person. It's like, wow, here's a really poignant portrayal of evil and wickedness that needs to be taken and and fought. And I think that would be kind of like the the gauntlet to throw down in in Christian pop culture, like you're saying, is to to try to find ways to our our culture, which is so ingrained and enamored with with either rejecting goodness or virtue, or with very sometimes with with a a basic principle of of uh, appreciating goodness and love and 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 rightness but very skewed manifestations of it uh to try to make it in make virtue and goodness look really attractive in the right ways to a culture that doesn't find them that way and look e- make evil look as evil as it ought to uh in complex and nuanced but real ways and which is one reason why i think you know stoker can be again helpful in coming back to that i would Rest in peace. If we never got a a faithful, you know, 
14 episode uh, mini series based on the book, you know, that was a more faithful adaptation, which apparently by all accounts I've heard, we just, we haven't had that faithful of an adaptation yet, but we don't need a movie or mini series adaptation. The book is fine. I, I will adopt the mantle of book purist now, uh, henceforth for Bram Stoker's Dracula. But if we did get a series like that, I think uh, the way in is to understand that this is a story of survival recovery with a man and a woman who happen to be a married couple, which I think is kind of rare in storytelling. You know, they've both been through trauma, uh, one more past and one more present, you know, at the hands of the same nemesis and. There's your in now with a culture that wants to talk about trauma, which wants to talk about a recovery from this kind of abuse, this kind of evil, but you would have to commit to it. And in order to commit to it, you would have to commit to the idea that all these people, uh, this uh, pseudo ecumenical group has to come together and they're not just using uh, means like guns and uh, hypnosis and you know a little bit more open-mindedness toward folklore uh, to ward off the vampires, but they are using specifically Christian means uh, to fight this foe. Uh, he is not just of this world. Uh, he is material. He can be fought that way. Uh, he is more, he is limited, uh, but his influence is also profoundly spiritual. The attack then on Jonathan and Mina and the others uh, is not just a, an attack on their persons. It's, it's an attack on their soul and any adaptation to be faithful to this original has to understand that has to understand that you, it's an attack on body and soul, and therefore you have to defend body and soul. Yeah, there's a great line in there when, which of the characters it is, it may be Van Helsing or whatever, but it says, our enemy is not merely spiritual, which means, yes, he is bodily, but it also, that line also presupposes that, yes, but he is also spiritual too. He is both bodily and spiritually a threat. And and I think that is part of it too, right? People, our contemporary culture likes the supernatural elements, the fear, the allure of things. But if you don't actually believe there's such a thing as a soul, then the stakes don't seem as high. Uh, but if we can compellingly craft ways in which characters who manifest that, like we can make the idea of the soul as it should be, something which is a, a real and profound element to actual existence that this is is true and I, I think stoker was working at that even in his own day working a little bit against some materialist tendencies there then that can be a powerful way in which the book one of many ways in which the book can be useful and of service i think and and also just i mean it's just a great read it's a lot of fun no, it definitely is. And I, I thank God uh, for Stoker, uh, flaws and all, you know, maybe wasn't quite the family man, was a bit of a workaholic and uh, definitely had some, uh, some strange ideas about uh, Catholicism or Anglicanism. Uh, but ultimately, I think uh, the gospel shines through in this story, and I'm very glad to have discovered it. And I'm really glad that you are discovering even more of it in, in your research. I would love to hear more about what you find, and I'll be rooting for uh, in any avenues that you have in the future of of sharing that with other readers. Where could uh, folks go to engage with uh, anything else that you have already written? Because we met you uh, with uh, Christ and Pop Culture, and we've actually written some stuff about Star Trek and all of that. Where can folks go to find uh, some of your articles about that or anything else? Yeah, well, most I mean, most of the things that I have written on as far as that would be easily accessible on the web would be through Christ and Pop Culture. That's where I've done most of my writing. I, I did a few, you know, like we both did do some movie review stuff back for Christianity Today a while back. but. I do have a couple on the subject of Dracula at Christ and Pop Culture. Now, if you're uh, either have the resources or the willpower or want to look for further uh, on a on a scholarly level, I do have a couple of academic articles on Stoker. I 
one in the March 2017 edition of Christianity and Literature, which is about actually a ghost story he wrote called The Judge's House. And I'm looking at some Christian elements in that one. And then actually there's a journal there. Believe it or not, there's a journal actually called the Journal of Dracula Studies. And uh, I have an article on that one on actually an essay that he wrote called The Censorship of Fiction, where he actually and this is something I, I didn't get into in, in this particular conversation, but it's really fascinating. About a 10 years after Dracula, Stoker writes an essay where he, he literally says that the novelist's task is to do in large form what Christ does in his parables. He actually. Oh, wow. Artist and the writer. And he says, what is a parable, but a novel in little. And he, he has a several pages analyzing that. So I have an article where I look at kind of the how that essay may have been influenced by his, uh, by an understanding of Thomas or sorry, of uh, St. Augustine. So it, it's about the Augustinian matrix of Bram Stoker's The Censorship of Fiction. And that's in the 2019 edition of the journal of Dracula studies. So uh, those are my Stokerian uh, elements that you could find if you're looking to go further with this. Which I am. And I'm also now hoping that that quote is public domain because I want that on a T-shirt and I want that on a T-shirt yesterday. Well, that's an amazing quote. (laughs) It it is public domain. You can find that article, that article, the censorship of fiction. You can just use you can find that through several different web versions and Google books. And also many editions of Dracula now include it. The Penguin Classics edition includes the full essay, too. So it's really uh, very accessible and very interesting to read. Oh, fantastic. Any of these links that are available, uh, we're going to include in uh, what should prove to be a, a systematic collection of show notes along with this episode. So send me anything you've got. We'll definitely include those links. And uh, listeners, do let us know uh, what you think of Dracula and how deep you plan to go into the scholarship about this. I, I feel like I'm just starting my journey. Uh, this isn't a you know polite podcast host talk here um, i really do plan to, <laughs> to get in a little bit deeper into this because i i am such a newbie to uh, this genre this book uh, and yet i find it all very fascinating and uh, an essential uh, imagery and languages for christians who are engaging with uh, with the real world around us so go to the go get those show notes and uh, go read jeffrey's articles jeffrey i really really appreciate uh, your time in the middle of a busy afternoon and um, rooting for uh, your further exploration of the Stoker verse. Godspeed to you, brother. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Well, what a great interview with Jeffrey, Stephen, uh, that you guys had. Uh, I am going to have to check out Dracula now because, you know, besides Monster Squad and Castlevania, my my other taste of the vampire genre is The Strain, a more recent uh, TV adaptation of this genre that was truly horrifying. It wasn't comedic at all. There's no sparkly vampires. They're all very evil, but there was really no light or redemption in it. It's just very dark and nihilistic and, you know, pretty overwhelming. And so uh, it sounds like Dracula has a lot more redemptive power in it, the original. So I'm going to have to check that out. So for you, our listeners, we want to hear from you. Have you read Dracula? What do you think about it? Send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com about that book or about anything else on this topic you want to talk about. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And Steve and I, I understand we have a new issue of Lorehaven magazine coming out pretty soon. Uh, yes, indeed. Just a few days ago, and we completed the cover design and that cover is available. We are aiming for a release on Friday, which is October the 30th. So Halloween Eve or All Hallows Eve Eve 
You should have that digital only for now. Uh, issue drop uh, at lorehaven.com. Uh, we actually uh, interview uh, Emily Hazel. She shares an, an article about her award-winning book, Seventh City, which is an Arctic fantasy, which, which I haven't seen a whole lot of those. That is a marvelous book. I just finished it, and uh, we're really looking forward to running that review as well as her article. And, of course, more than 12 reviews of the best Christian-made fantastical novels that we were able to find. And we got another article or two as well in there, maybe even something about Wicca from our columnist, Marion Jacobs. You can subscribe free and be the, among the first to hear when that issue is released at lorehaven.com slash subscribe. And you should be able to get that in your inbox, uh, hoping, Lord willing, Friday morning, October the 30th. Also, Christmas is coming. I'm, I'm sorry to have to tell you, but as we record this, uh, it is actually literally two months until Christmas Eve. I just looked at the calendar and went, oh, snap, I need to get shopping. And so do you. We are making great T-shirts uh, still for Christian fans at lorehaven.com slash store. All links in the show notes, of course. Those are still available for purchase. I'm actually wearing one right now. Uh, it's our uh, one that's uh, he's not a tame lion. He's uh, not safe, but he is good uh, design. Those would make great gifts, uh, particularly if you can't get out to stores as much, depending on where you are. Uh, go over to lorehaven.com slash store and see if you find something that you like or that a loved one would really appreciate. Well, make sure to check out our library, lorehaven.com slash library. You can look at all the different Christian-made fantastical books we've reviewed. And Stephen, just the other day, I got to talk to someone about this who said, hey, I'm looking for some YA books, but I, I don't know where to start <laughs> because I don't know this genre and, you know, what, what can I find for my kids and how can I find a, a book that's appropriate for them? And so lorehaven.com slash library, you can sort by young adult, middle grade, you can sort by genre, and you can check out all the books that we've reviewed. And there you go. There's some great book recommendations for Christmas gifts. Indeed. And now I believe the entire Lorehaven Magazine review backlog has been posted and we actually completed some site upgrades so that if you go to that library page, you can actually see at a glance which of those books have been reviewed. They got a little star next to them, and you can see the review excerpt in the hover card. So definitely go do some exploring there and see if you can find a, find a great story that just might become one of your next favorites. Next on Fantastical Truth. Again, with the regrettable reminder, I'm sorry to have to tell you this again, but at least if you live in the United States, Election Day is just ahead. Uh, <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast episode on its day of release, it's just one week ahead. I'm really sorry to have to tell you this. You will also be interested to know that our next episode is going to very carefully, very cautiously delve into politics. Just a little bit, just a little bit, but from a unique angle. We're going to ask, how can fantastic stories help us view political issues in a more biblical perspective? How can we understand the role that imagination has in political engagement, the bad kind, the good kind, and a mixture of both? How do these pictures that people draw in their heads end up replacing a better view of politics and government? and corrupt our view of these things, and how can a more biblical imagination help us to recover uh, a more biblical view of politics, whatever your conclusions might be, at least on most of those issues. Meanwhile, look out for vampires. Don't turn them into cartoons. Definitely don't turn them into anti-heroes. 
but recognize how these old mythologies actually help give us a language to express a rightful fear of undead, unrighteous perversion and disordered masculinity as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth.